Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, Beeson Divinity School has a strong commitment to the centrality of preaching. In fact, our founding benefactor, the wonderful Ralph Waldo Beeson, gave us this one-phrase mission statement. He said, I want you to train pastors who can preach. Well, one way we do that is through the annual William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. And we're going to listen to a lecture today that was given in 2002 in this lectureship by Dr. Brian Chappell. Brian, at the time he came to Beeson to give this lecture, was the president of Covenant Theological Seminary. He's now the senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. A wonderful preacher, a wonderful strategist about preaching. His book, Christ-Centered Preaching, is one that we've used as a textbook in homiletics here at Beeson for a long time. An effective communicator, a person who preaches with great passion, a gospel preacher, Let's listen to Dr. Brian Chappell as he speaks at Beeson Divinity School in 2002 on Christ-centered preaching. My intention today is to trace a path. The first is to lay a foundation again of the matters first discussed in that textbook, Christ-centered preaching. Hopefully add a few more matters that uh, the Lord has helped me understand in the last few years since that book was written and then tomorrow to deal with some of the questions that people have had over the last decade or so concerning that book. So my intention is to lay the foundation today and then do some of the spins tomorrow on what some of the questions, and that means controversies, have been since. The goal of this particular lecture, as you may see, is to try to see again the beauty and the benefits of the unifying principle that binds all of Scripture together. Now, when I talk about the beauty and the benefits of the Christocentrality, of the Christ message throughout all the Scriptures, I recognize that there's an immediate set of questions, if not objections, that rise. And I experienced them again this past week. Just my experience was this. I had a a friend, a colleague, who went to visit his daughter at college, and he was there across the weekend, so he went and listened to her pastor preach in that college setting. And he came back and he said to me, Brian, I'm so concerned about where my daughter goes to church. The man there doesn't preach the gospel. All he does is get on the kids to straighten up and fly right and not get involved in immorality or drugs. He he just kind of heaps blame on them all the time, but he doesn't preach the gospel. I might as well have been in a synagogue, because all I heard was the law. In that very same week, I got a call from a man who was involved in a pastoral search. He was the chairman of a pastoral search committee, and he was a little bit upset with one of my alums, one of my students that I had taught. And he said, He doesn't preach the scripture. All he does is talk about Jesus. I might as well have been in a liberal congregation where all they do is talk about love God and your fellow man because he doesn't 
preach the scripture. Now I thought, now, now this is very interesting. In the same week, I've had one complaint of a man who doesn't preach the gospel and another complaint against because he doesn't preach the scripture. I do recognize the concern. It's, it is this expositor's commitment and consternation. The commitment that we have as ones who desire to expound scripture is that we would preach the text that is present. That's our commitment. I want to preach the text that is present. But I sometimes run into a consternation, and it is I also want to preach Christ where he may not seem to be present. How do I do these two things together? How do I preach the text that is present and preach Christ where he may not seem to be present? I want to talk to you in order to answer those questions about the necessity of the redemptive message whenever I think we are presenting the Word of God as Christian preachers. To do that, I want to introduce, for some of you reintroduce, a concept that is in Christ-centered preaching called the Fallen Condition Focus, the FCF. If you were to say, what is the goal of Scripture, not just a particular text, but the whole of Scripture, I don't think we have to search very far. If there's a motto text for evangelicals beyond John 3.16, it is 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And I'll do it in the King James because many of you know it that way. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God might be, now here comes the hard word, the man of God might be Perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now that word perfect, some of you know, is the, the Greek word artios, which deals with completion. The, the word of God is given to complete us. Now there's a necessary implication. If the word of God is given to complete us, the necessary implication is that we are incomplete. We are incomplete. Now, the way in which the Scripture is dealing with that incompleteness is not just in an occasional reference here and there. All Scripture is inspired by God for these purposes of completing us. Not not just some of it, not just some places. All Scripture. And, And that completion, that way in which God intends to complete us, we might see in other texts such as Romans 15, 4, Whatsoever things were written aforetime, says the apostle, not just some things, but but whatever was written aforetime, those things were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written before, those scriptures given to complete us, whatever was written, was written to give us hope. Some of you remember in the message I mentioned yesterday, what is that golden thread that unites great preaching throughout all the ages? Those who study say, great preaching always gives hope. There is hope somehow there. And what I think we need to do is we approach scriptures and recognize that scripture is saying we're incomplete and hope is being provided to that incompleteness is that when we look at people as leaders in Christ church, we ought to look at people and see Swiss cheese. They got holes in them. They're incomplete. And the question we have to answer as leaders in Christ church and proclaimers of his word is what are we going to say fills the holes? What, what, what's going to complete people? 
Is it just straightening up and flying right? Working harder? What you do, are you going to fix it? Are you going to fill the holes? The question, of course, always is, what we will use to fill the holes? The answer to that question is made more difficult for us at times in evangelical North American Christianity because of the quandary we're in of a falsely divided legalism and liberalism. Here's the quandary we're in. In the evangelical church, we, we create a spectrum. And on the spectrum, we say, now, now somewhere there is legalism, that's, I'll put it on my right, that's way over on the right side. And we, we know that's not right. And there's liberalism, and that's way over on the left side. And we equate that with licentiousness. But if you really begin to examine the difference between legalism and licentiousness, or liberalism in its truest forms, you're going to have trouble identifying true Christianity, and it's for this reason. If you were to say to a legalist, what makes you right with God? What fills the holes? What would a legalist say? Well, you know, we would kind of say in this society, it's you don't drink or smoke or chew or go with the girls that do. You know, some version of that credo of, you know, you do these things and that will make it right. It's what you do. That's, that's kind of the credo of a true legalist. Nobody really thinks they're a true legalist, but somewhere deep in their hearts, they're thinking, what I do makes me right with God. Now I go to the other end of that spectrum that we create in this culture. Over here is a theological liberal. What does a theological liberal think makes you right with God? Well, being kind to the poor, loving your fellow man, working for the right causes. But again, it's what you do. This spectrum that we create really turns back on itself. True legalism or liberalism is really just the same thing. It's what you do that will fill the holes to make you complete. You fix it to make it right with God. And my contention is that Christianity can't be found on that spectrum. It is something else entirely. Because it is teaching it is not what you do that will fill the holes, but what God does. And therefore that preaching, seeking to be true to the text but only says, here's the things that you do, and then it's going to be okay between you and God. That that type of preaching, as, as faithful as it may be attempting to be to the text, is not just sub-Christian. It hasn't, just, hasn't quite reached the gospel message. It is actually anti-Christian. Because it is teaching people that what they do is what is going to be what makes them right with God. If we really think of the contrary, what's the alternative? We point out the FCF, the falling. I look at a passage and I say, what's wrong here? The reason I am doing it is I'm going to say, I have to know that so I'll know what God's got to do to fill the holes. The FCF is the way in which I'm trying to discern the grace that God must provide in order to make me right with himself. To define that most particularly, it's this. The FCF is the mutual human condition that contemporary believers share with those two or for whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage in order for us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we were in Lutheran circles, Lutherans would sometimes talk about the burden of the text. As I look at this text, what is its burden? Why? Why was it written? Why did the Holy Spirit put it here? Is this just for information? <laughs> 
You know, what, there, there is some issue, some burden that God is addressing that he included this text in Scripture. After all, all Scripture is given to complete us. All Scripture is given to provide hope for us. So, so what is this Scripture here for that God must be providing us hope in? Where do I, as it were, begin to now discern grace? You see, identifying a fallen condition in a text is forcing that question. I'm being forced to look for redemptive solutions, a divine answer rather than just a human answer. And the reason that we look at a text with an FCF is forcing away from a human-centered answer, anthropocentric preaching. It's forcing to Christocentric preaching. What, What does God have to do? If I'm really looking at this passage and identifying the fallenness that man exhibits that God must correct. If we really try to find out where the grace is in the passage, we have to discern what God is saying in a context. And that's the discipline of biblical theology. Some of you know this analogy. It's been used in different contexts. But it's thinking of how I study Scripture. I'm saying, how do I find grace where it doesn't seem to be specifically mentioned? Now, to do that, you have to think about different ways that you study any object, including a biblical text. One way that we were all taught is kind of the caricature of systematic theology. I look at a text, and I take out my magnifying glass, and I look very closely at the details. What's the tense of that verb? Um, Where is Bethlehem? What's its geography? Who is that person? Where is this word used in other texts? So I look very closely at the details, and with microscopic evaluation, I identify the specifics. Now let me say something. That is a very important and necessary aspect of exegeting a text. So this this sort of very close, precise examination is necessary. But there is another way of examining text, and it's not looking at a text with the magnifying glass, but rather looking at the text with a fisheye lens. Now, for some of you photographers, if you look at something through a fisheye lens, what do you see? You're already showing me with your hands. You, you see what's around. You see out to the horizons. If I look at a text with the lens of biblical theology, not so much systematic theology, but with the lens of biblical theology, I look at it and I always look at and see its context. Where does this fit in the context? I'm still concerned about its particulars. But I'm still looking at the context. The discipline of biblical interpretation, to return to your notes, the discipline of biblical interpretation that emphasizes the overarching themes that unite all of Scripture's particulars is known as biblical theology. The purpose of biblical theology is not simply to ask, what truth does this particular passage reveal, but to determine how these specific verses relate to the whole message of Scripture. I I just keep forcing myself. I have to look at this text in context, not just unto itself, not just its particulars. I have to keep thinking of where is this in context. The reason that every heretic has his verse is what? He takes his verse out of context. And biblical theology is simply saying, what is the context of this passage? Yes, it has moral instruction. Yes, it has characters that give us good moral example that we should be following. But what is their context? 
And I always have to keep thinking of that context. Now, ways that we do this can be variously defined, but one of the the chief writers on this in the last century was Gerhardus Voss. And I want to talk about those principles of biblical theology as we think of how do I rightly examine the text and preach the gospel from it? That, That really is the question here. How do I be true to the text and preach the gospel from it, no matter where I am in Scripture? Voss taught these interpretive principles. The first he called the progressive principle. The progressive principle. He said, biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology. Now you can just stop right there and recognize that there is a very sharp man writing. Because what he is saying from the beginning is, I'm still doing exegesis. Okay? He's saying that this is, this is not failing to examine the scriptures. This is still doing exegesis that I'm talking about. So he said biblical theology is a type of exegesis, still being fair and examining the text, which deals with the process of the self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. Revelation, he says, is a noun of action relating to divine activity. Revelation is an historically progressive process, a long series of successive acts. Now, I know it's a lot of words, but he's just saying this. As God is revealing himself in Scripture, he is doing it progressively. As God is revealing himself in Scripture, he's progressing. And, and it, it, you know, simplest terms, Paul knew more about God's revelation than Samson. It's not saying what Samson knew was wrong, but there's, Paul knows more than Samson did. There's been a progression. The second was the organic principle. The organic principle. Gerhardus Voss said this progressive process by which God is further revealing himself is organic. Revelation may be in seed form, which yields later full growth, accounting for diversity, but not true difference, because the earlier aspects of the truth are indispensable for understanding the true meanings of the later forms and vice versa. Now, again, a lot of words going by, but here's what he's saying. It's all tied together. It's all tied together. What comes later is explained by what happened before. But what happened before is also explained by what came later. Jesus said, for instance, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, how do you know what Jesus meant? Because you remember what came before. Remember, the people of God were grumbling. Oh, no, more manna. (laughs) And God, in response to their complaint, sent poisonous serpents. And the people were dying. So God provided a way out. Remember, he said, Moses, I want you to fashion a serpent of metal and raise it on a pole. And you say to the people, look at what I provide. Look at it. And you will live. And Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent to the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What was he saying? You must look to me in order to live. Now, how do I know that? I know what Jesus meant by what came before. But by the way, 
I understand more about Moses and the brazen serpent because of the way that Jesus used it. They help explain each other. It's organically tied together, the message of Scripture. Now, this relates to the final principle that Voss wanted us to know, which he called the redemptive principle. The redemptive principle. He said, Revelation is inseparably linked to the activity of redemption. Why is God revealing himself? Are we going to take a test later? (laughs) You know? Why is God doing this revelation of himself that's progressive and organic? Because he is telling us how he is going to redeem us. The revelation, he says, is connected to redemption, what God is doing in our behalf. So he says revelation is actually the interpretation of redemption. To see revelation properly, that is to see the scriptures properly, we must see it in its redemptive context. The context of some aspects of Revelation may be in seed form as it relates to redemption. That is, not everything is perfectly clear and mature yet, maybe just in seed form, but it is intricately related to the mature message and is not properly understood or communicated until this relationship is made clear. So until I make the relationship of the seed to the mature fruit... This little message of redemption may not be much yet, but until I connect to the mature message, I don't really understand what that earlier text was about. Think of it this way. If you could just, in your mind's eye, imagine that I were, were holding an acorn. And I would say, I'm going to explain to you what an acorn is. Now, you know, this is a, a, a little nut that you find on the ground in the fall, and uh, it's kind of shiny on one end that comes to a point and the other end has a little cap on it with a stem, and that's kind of darker brown and corrugated, and squirrels gather this in the fall, and they eat it in the winter, and and that's what an acorn is. Now, I just told you many true things about the acorn. What did I neglect to mention? I neglected to mention the oak tree. So even though I would have told you many true things about the seed form, by failing to mention the oak tree, you still don't know what it's about. Now I want you to imagine another acorn. This acorn is the commandment, you shall not steal. Now I can tell you many true things about it. I can say this commandment appeared in the Decalogue which means it's in Exodus and it's in Deuteronomy. But it appears in the New Testament too. You can find it in Colossians and Thessalonians in the book of James. You shall not steal. And this doesn't just refer to not taking other people's possessions. It actually means you shall take nothing that is not your own. You you shall not only fail to take people's material things, you can't take their reputations. Don't spoil their names. It's not yours to take. So don't take anything that is not your own. Don't steal. It's bad. God says not to. Don't do it. Now, I just told you many true things about the commandment. Did I tell you what it was really about? How can Paul say in the book of Galatians, the third chapter, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us where? Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us. Well, wait a second. 
doesn't say anything about Christ. It just says, don't steal. (laughs) How could that be? A message that leads us to redemption. Well, let's ask some more questions. If God says, do not steal, what do I learn about a God who would give such a command? If God says, do not steal, what do I know about the character of God? What's he like? He's honest. He doesn't steal. He's concerned about those who do. Ultimately, I'll get to the point of saying he's holy. He has standards that are high and pure and perfect. He's holy. That's what I understand by understanding the command. By the way, what do I understand about me? If I understand the command, you shall not steal. You shall not ever take anything that is not your own, not other people's possessions, not even their good name, not their reputation. You shall not take anything ever that is not your own. If I really understand the command, what do I understand about me? (laughs) I'm a thief is what I understand. God is holy and I'm not. There's a problem here. I've got to find an answer. There's a hole here. I'm being led to look to something beyond my law-keeping as the way out of the human predicament. My fallenness has required me to look to something else as the solution. So if all I have said to people in a particular service is, stealing is bad, don't do it. I said, I just said what the text said. How could that be wrong? Because it wasn't all the text said in its context. It had a redemptive purpose. God was revealing something to his people for a purpose. Yes, there is solid moral instruction here that must be passed along to God's people. But that is not all that is being passed along to God's people. There is a message of hopelessness in the command that must be answered by the hope that God has provided when he gave his word. It has a context that needs to be related or we actually lead people to despair if they understand what the word really means in its moral instruction. So to complete your notes here, in the same sense as trying to explain an acorn without mentioning the oak tree, we cannot properly explain any aspect of revelation even if we say many true things about it until we have in some way related it to redemption. Now, that may be a nice theory. Does the Bible itself say that anywhere? On the next page, you see some key texts. One is 1 Corinthians 2.2. The Apostle Paul speaking to those in Corinth and saying, I resolve to make nothing known among you but Jesus Christ and what a good guy he was and how good you can be if you try really hard to. Is that what he said? I resolve to make nothing known among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message of the atonement. God had to do something in your behalf. And he said, I resolve to make nothing known among you. Some of your Bibles will say, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we almost want to start debating Paul. Now, Paul, you know that's not true. Now, you talk about husband and wife relationships, and you talk about stewardship in the church, and you talk about worship, you talk about lots of other things. Somehow not in Paul's mind. Whatever he talked about had a context and was related to the work of God in Christ 
that God was providing something. There may be legitimate responses of worship, and there may be legitimate understanding that results in how we relate to hus- as husbands and wives. But it was tied to a core message. And he said, I resolved to make nothing known among you. But that core message, of course it had implications, but that core remained in effect. It is the very reason that he would say in the preceding chapter, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It was the atonement that was the stumbling block. Would any Jew be upset that the Apostle Paul would say, you should be faithful to your spouse? Any Jew upset by that message? I wouldn't. Would any Jew be upset that Paul, you should not steal? Any Jew upset by that message? No, it's perfectly fine. What was the problem? You know to be faithful, and you know not to steal. But you are so unfaithful, and so much does theft characterize your heart that God had to send his own son to shed his blood to die for you so that your best works would still be covered with a righteousness not your own. You will die in your sin despite your righteous proposals if you do not claim Christ as Savior. That was the stumbling block. And it was that that he said had to be as part of the message. Think how Jesus himself would express it. The biblical narrator speaking in Luke 24, 27, speaking of Jesus after the resurrection says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now for a biblical theologian, the alls here are all important. Jesus is explaining what is said in all the scriptures about himself. Now, here is an amazing hermeneutical statement. If Jesus is saying all the scriptures are about him, then if I explain some text and fail to relate it to him, what have I done? I have failed to say the very thing that Jesus said it was about. Jesus said it's about him. So if I'm proclaiming this truth without somehow getting that context into view, I have failed the very interpretive test that Jesus put upon the text to expound it correctly. Think of how this visually occurs in Matthew 17 in the Transfiguration. Jesus on the mount who appears with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, And they all come now to the fore to give honor to him. It's all about him. It's all culminated in this. It all has a context that leads to his appearance and the testimony of the Savior. What does this mean for how we are to then proclaim our messages? Just a a key couple of paragraphs from Jay Adams in his book, Preaching with Purpose. He writes this. It is easy to become moralistic when preaching. Well, there's nothing wrong with preaching morality. You certainly don't want to preach the opposite after all. I mean, <laughs> In contrast, he says, moralism is legalistic, ignores the grace of God, and replaces the work of Christ with self-help. Here's just what you do to fix it. He writes this, really wonderful words. If you preach a sermon 
that would be acceptable to the members of a Jewish synagogue or to a Unitarian congregation, there is something radically wrong with it. Preaching, when truly Christian, is distinctive. And what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of a saving and sanctifying Christ. Jesus Christ, he says, must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. This is just as true, key words coming, of edificational preaching as it is of evangelistic preaching. Now, we know we get Jesus in into the evangelistic messages. You know, I mean, you got to do that if it's evangelistic. You know, so once a month or once a quarter when you do the evangelistic message, that's when you get Jesus in there. But, you know, if you're just talking about how you get along with your neighbor or your wife or, you know, study for the test better, you know, you don't need Jesus in there. Well, none of us would say that, though we do preach that way. And so Adam's saying, no, you know, Jesus has to be present not just in the evangelistic messages. He actually is the one who enables and motivates by his spirit in everything that we would do that would honor God. Therefore, there must be a Christ understanding present even in the edificational messages. Now, before we talk about what those redemptive messages sound like and how they're characterized, it may be good to think of the distinctions of non-redemptive messages, you know, the ones that maybe are very familiar to us, but have certain problems. What, what's, what's the distinction of a redemptive message? Well, first, it's not sola bootstrapsa, um, which is, of course, a play on words, but it's, you know, you just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and you do better this week. You didn't do good enough last week, so you do better this week. Now, sola bootstrapsa messages come in many forms. Hardly any of us would say, just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and do better. But what do we say? Well, it's the classic 10 steps to a better whatever message. 10 steps to a better marriage relationships. 10 steps to a better evangelism approach. 10 steps to a better prayer. You know, here are just 10 things that you do to fix it. You know, if it really is just 10 things that I do that will improve my prayer life, that's all it is, then I might as well just take out my prayer wheel and start spinning it. If it's just what I do. If I don't somehow gain access to God because of a great high priest who has gone before me and is interceding at the throne of grace on my behalf, if I don't recognize that I have access because of what he has done, then I'm in big trouble who think that my, because my prayers are better heard because I did them better. Ten steps to a better fill-in-the-blank without Jesus is really just human religion, regardless of the God we think we are praying to or seeking to honor. Do this thing or do this behavior to get yourself right with God is the core message. The basic problem with each of these solo bootstraps and messages is, again, these are not merely sub-Christian messages. They are what? Anti-Christian messages. Since no scripture in context, and we have said in context says, just be good and God will be happy. If we could just be good and God be happy, we would not need Jesus. Nor, therefore, should we preach messages that are the deadly bees. I take a lot of teasing over this, but nonetheless, it seems to stick in people's minds well enough. The deadly bees. You've heard of the killer bees. These are the deadly bees. Messages that seem so right because they just follow that text right along, so how could they be wrong? 
Well, for these reasons. One form of the deadly bees are sermons that simply are bee-like messages. Bee-like messages. Just follow this example and fill in the blank who that might be. Daniel, Moses, David. You know, just, just be like Barnabas. Barnabas was an encourager. Why, even the name means encouragement. And we should encourage one another. Well, don't, don't really pay too much attention to that second missionary journey when he wasn't such an encourager. But on the first missionary journey, <laughs> we should be like Barnabas. You know, I think care is taken in the scriptures to tar almost everybody so that we won't say, just be like so-and-so. Now, I recognize that there are a couple of biblical persons that we don't have much dirt on. I mean, you know, you know Caleb, I don't really know of anything wrong said about Caleb. And it just says of Enoch, you know, Enoch walked with God and he was not. And, you know, there's not much you can wedge in there of wrong. I mean, it's just kind of... All it says about him. But if you go practically anywhere else, what do we find? The disciples were cowards. And the patriarchs were scoundrels. And the kings, my goodness, would David say, just be like me? You know, lead the Lord's armies and write wonderful poetry and kill the lion and the bear and commit adultery and kill your best friend and raise bad kids and turn away from God at the end of your life and just be like David. <laughs> you know, would David say, just be like me? Then why should we say that? Why do we say that? God is saying over and over again, I take broken vessels, jars of clay, of humanity, and I pour the glory of my grace out of it so that the glory is not in the human vessel. Who is the glory to? It is to God. But when we begin to interpret the scriptures as an understanding of how grace makes efficacious the work of fallen humanity, then we recognize God is the hero of every text. Gideon's not the hero. He turned to idolatry. David is not the hero. He fell in awful sin. God is the hero. And the importance of that is when we look to people and we say to them, you know what, if you could just be like Jesus, and they fall in despair, we say, but listen, God is still your hero because he made a way for you despite your sin, despite your frailty, and even though you can't be like Jesus, Jesus did something for you. Another message, of course, that gets us into trouble but comes so easily to us is be good messages. Be good messages are basically just save yourself messages. Hunker down and try harder. You weren't good enough this week, so be better next week. More ready to our lips, often in seminary and college settings, is be disciplined messages. These are messages about sanctifying yourself. You should pray more and you should read your Bible more. And you should go to church more, especially my church. You should go to more, <laughs> just more and more and more and more. And then it'll be OK with God. Now, you know, theologically, that's not the right answer. But think instinctively how we react, even in our most mature lives as Christians. When we know we have failed God, what's the reflex? I'll pray more now. I'll make it up to God. I'll go to church three times this week. I'll make it up to God. 
What does Isaiah say your best works are? Only filthy rags. Here, God, how about a few more filthy rags? Is it okay now? Well, how about a few more filthy rags? Being more disciplined is not going to fill the holes. Not ultimately. Now, we're going to talk in a little bit about there are certainly wonderful things that the disciplined Christian life has as fruit, but it is not making us right with God. And if it is perceived that way, if we are just bribing God with our good works, we have not understood what God himself has said about our good works. B messages imply that we are able to change our fallen condition. Listeners are left to assume that our acceptance by God is determined by our actions. But such messages stated or implied make us no different than Unitarians or Buddhists or Hindus. It's just what you do that fixes it. Of course there are B messages in Scripture. But we have to identify their context. For instance, does the Apostle Paul ever say, just be like me, just follow my example? Does Paul ever say that? Well, at least five times. Now finish the verse. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Oh, it's got a context. And it's the context that we have to keep remembering or else we will just say human-centered messages. We cannot be anything of God without his redemptive provision. That is his grace. That is the enabler, the motivator, that which is providing the holiness that we lack. Remember, therefore, remember there is no merit in keeping God's commands. Now, that's usually a startling statement to people. There's no merit in keeping God's commands. Is there blessing in keeping God's commands? Ah, yes. There is certainly blessing in keeping God's commands. But if we had to earn grace prior to or after our salvation, it would not be what? Grace. <laughs> if we had to earn grace, it wouldn't be grace. The Westminster Confession says it this way, the great disproportion between our best works and God's true holiness means not only that our good works do not merit us God's acceptance, but actually earn his reproof. Think about that. There's so much mix of our humanity in our best works that were they not presented to God in Christ, they would actually be deserving his reproof rather than... Think how different that is than most of our culture. Most people are out there balancing the scales, right? Oh, I know I'm not perfect. But the good works outweigh the bad. Biblically, on what side of the scale do the good works go? They actually go on the bad. Our best works are only filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Luke 17, 10. Do you remember at the end of the parable, Jesus says, so when we have done all that we should do, we are still what kind of servants? Unprofitable servants. Even when we've done all that we should do, we are still unprofitable servants and unworthy of sitting at the master's table. It's not our works that are going to make it right with God. Therefore, we should recognize this. If our best works don't make us right with God's, then God's true holiness precludes self-protection and self-promotion as primary motives for obedience or means of grace. We'll probably talk about this a bit more in the question and answer period. Somebody might make a note. And if you want to talk about self-protection or self-promotion as means or motives for obedience, recognize this is what's going on in a lot of the Christian life. 
Many, many people are serving God out of a sense of, I'm going to keep the ogre in the sky off of my back. So I'm serving God, so he won't hurt me. But if the reason that you're serving God, the primary reason you're serving God, is to keep the ogre in the sky off of your back, who are you really serving? Just yourself. Just yourself. Now, there's another reason lots of people in the Christian life serve God. They serve God so they'll get more good stuff, either in this life or the life to come. Bigger mansions up there, you know. But if the primary reason you serve God is so you'll get more good stuff, who are you really serving? Just yourself. It's just sanctified selfishness. We cannot, we cannot truly serve God until we come to the profound conviction that our best works merit us nothing. Because if my best works merit me nothing, then why would I do them? Not for me, for whom? For him. If my best works merit me nothing, then I'm not doing them for me. I'm doing them out of love for him. And the recognition that my best works are filthy rags before God is fundamental to being able to do what is holy. Because if I really think that my best works are the pennies that I'm putting to heaven to buy God off, then my best works cannot, cannot be accomplishing any holy purpose. I'm not saying God doesn't use them. But we must recognize that only as our works are presented in Christ do they have any merit before God. Therefore, Christ must be in the picture. The second bullet, therefore, becomes very important. Recognize B messages, therefore. B messages are not wrong in themselves. We've already said the Bible does say, be holy as I am holy. God does say that. A B message isn't wrong in itself. What is it wrong in? They are wrong messages by themselves. It's not wrong to tell God's people, be a good husband, be a good father. It's not wrong in itself. It's wrong if that's all you say. Just be good. Just don't steal. If that's all you've said, is be more disciplined. If that's all you've said, then that's what makes it wrong. To put those in the context of God's redeeming work that enables and motivates our obedience, then we have what is proper. A challenge to holiness, therefore, must be accompanied by a Christ focus, some aspect of redemptive provision, some indication of God's way out of the human predicament, or it is only man-centered religion. Now again, for your question and answer period, this may help. Sometimes people, when they hear or read Christ-centered preaching, they think, well, if I don't mention Jesus, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. My greater concern is that the message of God's provision is in the passage. That you're saying, what, what did God do or show us here that helped us understand that it was what God would ultimately provide that was the answer? It, it's not saying, I've got to find Jesus behind you know, that bush over there or in that mud puddle. It, it's saying, what is God doing in this passage to have us understand what he would have to accomplish in Christ? People cannot do what they are told to do apart from God's help. I left out a sentence. Moral instruction communicated with the best of motive actually wounds if grace is absent because people cannot do what they are told to do apart from God's help. Law-giving without grace will damage others by causing them either to despair of hope or to pretend to be holy. 
That really is the result, right? If all we say to people is be better, be good, they've only got two conclusions. I can't. I can't. Or what may be worse, they may say, I did. I did. I'm holy. I did. Lord, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. And we become like the rich young ruler. So either arrogance or despair are the results of messages that only say, be good, be better, be more disciplined. If you wound spiritually, then you are obligated to heal by leading to him who alone provides holiness. Think how the Apostle Paul does it in Ephesians 6.10. Here's a strong B message, right? Here, putting on the full armor of God, he says, be strong. Now, you, the Apostle doesn't get more strident than this. Fight the devil. Be strong in the power of what? His might. His might. Yes, here's something for you to do. With all the energy that you have, but be strong in the power of his might. He must Make the way, enable, strengthen. He must still be the answer. How do we preach these messages that are redemptive? What is their design? How do we get them? I think one way that I at least try to help students with designing redemptive messages is to begin with a clear fallen condition focus. When we look at that passage, we look at it and we ask these fundamental questions. Number one, what does the text say? You know, we always, the basic exegetical question. What does the text say? You know, the great Haddon Robinson line, what's the big what? What's the big idea? What's going on here? I want to be true to the text. What's the big idea? But we move on from that to ask these questions. Not only what's the big idea, but what concerns did the text address? That is, what is the context? Why was this written? What was going on in Israel? What was going on in David's heart? What was going on in Peter's life? What was the concern that caused this to be written? And then number three, what do we share in common with? What do we share in common with? Those two are about whom the text was written or the one by whom the text was written. What do we share in common with? This is really what, what links the message of Scripture to our lives today. We're not just as preachers. It wasn't Thomas awful. You know, what a terrible doubter. Jesus had told him he was going to rise again. He still didn't believe it. You know, can you imagine that you would demand of God that he would show you his hands and feet until you put your finger in the wounds that you wouldn't believe? What a terrible person Thomas was. How dare he doubt like that? Well, why is the message in Scripture of Thomas? Because he alone doubts? Why is the message there? Because we doubt. How are we like them? What was the burden of the text? And how are we like persons there? If there's no temptation taking you but such as is, common, then the burden that is there exists here. How are we like them? What's the common denominator? Once we have identified that FCF, then we identify the purpose of the text for redemptive instruction. We've said there's a burden. What redemptive instruction is being applied to that burden or whole? One way that we do this is by what's historically called the redemptive historical method. The redemptive historical method. We look at this text for its context, and therefore we looked at its redemptive, its place in the flow of redemptive history. A way I like to think about this is remembering the importance of the proto-evangelium, right? Genesis 3.15. What does it say? 
Jesus, uh, Jesus, God says to Satan at the time, remember, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And most biblical commentators say from that first gospel, the rest of biblical history and world history unfolds. Everything is now about the great battle between the seed of the woman and Satan. Everything that unfolds is about that. It's as though we could stand on a hill overlooking a vast Napoleonic battlefield. And, you know, over there's the artillery back on the hills. And uh, behind the hills right now is the cavalry waiting to come. In the foreground is the infantry. Back over there are the supply wagons and both sides there's spies hidden behind it. In order to explain any particular on the battlefield, I have to relate it to the overall battle. What's going on? And, and the great battle that is going on in the cosmos is between the seed of the woman and Satan. What is God doing with Adam and Eve? What is he doing with Abraham? What is he doing with the judges? As he begins to say, you know, when everybody does what's right in his own eyes, that doesn't work. So now we'll try human kings. Is that going to fix it? Well, no, there's another dead end. Human kings don't fix it. The word of God through the prophets says that something else must come. Someone must come, sent by God himself to fix things. And when he comes, it is his work that makes it right between man and God until there will be a culmination when the world itself will be recreated. It's, it's all about God's fixing it and showing the dead ends of every other path. So the... The cosmological view, the redemptive historical method says, where does this passage fit? What's its context? Now, typically, when I begin to have that discussion with people, their, their eyes go, oh boy, you mean every sermon I've got to preach Genesis to Revelation? You know, I've got to do the whole thing. Or it's, Well, there are ways of being more precise, and some of those ways are indicated here. I don't mean for this to be an exhaustive list, but just helpful. In its context, every passage could be one of these things. It might be predictive of the work of Christ. Now, obviously, certain things like the prophetic passages and the passages on the temple and the Messianic Psalms and the Old Testament sacraments. You know, there are things that are predicting, indicating what Christ would do. In that way, they're exemplary, they are being exemplary of God's redemptive work. Other passages are preparatory. This is item B. Other passages are preparatory for the work of Christ. Like we've already said, Galatians 3.24, the law was our schoolmaster, our pedagogue, to lead us to Christ. And even Romans 4.23, everything was written aforetime was written to give us hope. They were preparing us for what God would do in Christ. Certain passages are reflective of the work of Christ. They are reflective of the work of Christ. That is, they are exemplifying God's nature that would provide redemption. He is showing his faithlessness to faithless people. Okay? He's showing his faithfulness to faithless people. He is showing his unwillingness to tolerate sin so that he must deal with it. As many passages are reflective of God's nature so that we would recognize what he would do in Christ. Or they may also be reflective of our nature. So we would understand what God would have to do in Christ. So things may be reflective. 
or resultant. Certain passages are resultant of the work of Christ. These are the passages on why we can approach God boldly, because of the result of what Christ has already done. The last page in your lecture notes, number seven, are just numerous examples of things I've just said to you, and I won't refer to it more than that than just giving you those examples of certain passages that are predictive, preparatory, reflective, or resultant. Those things are what are covered most fully in Christ-centered preaching as a book. I do want to move to a couple of categories that I have found helpful over the last years, also covered in Christ-centered preaching, but not as separate categories. But it seems to have broken these out. People are sometimes helped. As you talk redemptive historical method, whether looking predictive, preparatory, reflective, or resultant, people do begin to just get scared at times. Oh no, what if I don't pick the right path here? What if the context I mention is not the right context? And often there is the great war among the theologians about, you know, who's got the right paradigm for this particular passage? And I just kind of want to move beyond that and say, if, if it's not clear to you where this passage fits in the flow of redemptive history, is there any other way of thinking about the passage that will take you quickly to its redemptive essence? One other path is simply the doctrinal instruction method. That is, some passages give us redemptive instruction in straight doctrinal statement, whether Old Testament or New Testament. It says of Abraham, Abraham believed God and what? It was credited to him for righteousness. Now, if you don't see redemptive instruction there, you ain't looking. <laughs> he believed God, hint, 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 <laughs> and it was credited to him for righteousness. And that redemptive understanding is in straight doctrinal statement. And we don't have to kind of move from Genesis to Revelation if we have the straight doctrinal statement of a redemptive truth that's in evidence there. It may be there that way. But what I have found most helpful through the years is the next method, what I call the relational interaction method. And it is, it is just asking two simple questions of any text. Wherever I go in Scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, just take out these two questions and use them like lenses to look at any passage, and you will begin to think of it in redemptive terminology. And they, they are very fair questions to ask of any text. The first question is this. What does this text reveal about God's nature or attributes that provides the work of Christ? I mean, just what does this passage tell me about God? And what's the converse question going to be? What does this passage tell me about our nature or attributes that requires the work of Christ? Now, if I do that, if I just look at this passage, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about me? I will inevitably think about redemptive truths. God is holy and I'm not. I can, I can look at... The apparently look at the most apparently moralistic passages, you know, and, and recognize God is giving me that morality. It reflects him in some way, but it also says something about me. And, and that disjuncture between who God is and who I am is going to take me to a redemptive understanding of Scripture no matter where I am in the, in the passages of Scripture. Once I have identified those Aspects of God's grace, whether through it is redemptive historical, doctrinal instruction, or relational interaction. And just think what relational interaction means. How often God is saying, in the way he relates to his people. You know, Manasseh was such an awful person. And yet, what happened to him? God still 
called him to himself, loved him, made him his own. The people of Israel, time and time again, walked away from God, turned to idolatry. What did God do? Judged them and then called them his own. Over and over again, rather than feeling like I go way out here, I say to students, just look right here. Just look right here. How is God dealing with his people right here? And if we're not just thinking in terms of moral instruction, which because of application we often want to do, not just thinking in terms of moral instruction, but thinking in terms of God's interaction with his people, we will start to see God's redemptive message over and over and over again in the scriptures. He's saying, you are faithless, but I am faithful. Now in that knowledge, serve me. In that confidence, serve me. In the joy that is your strength. And the mode of enablement comes from the acknowledgement of God's present redemptive plan. So we do this then, seeing that we apply the redemptive instruction to the fallen condition focus. We start out with a burden. Then we begin to explore the text to say, how is grace being made evident here? And then we begin to apply that grace to the burden. What I sometimes use, and we'll use more in our lecture tomorrow, we take truth to struggle. Take truth to struggle. What we wrestle with so much in this culture, because we do want to apply the scriptures to people's lives, is we make lists of behaviors. At the end of a sermon, I'm going to tell you five things I want you to do, and I give you five new behaviors. Before I preach this week, I didn't even think of those five things, but i got to do application, so here's five things I want you to do. Instead of thinking, what are people struggling with? How are they like the ones in this passage? How are they like those for whom this passage was designed? And so I take the truth and I apply it to the struggle. Now I'm pastoring. I'm not just making lists of new behaviors. I'm saying here's the struggle and here's God dealing with that struggle. Here is the grace that gives you strength and hope and the ability to handle the struggle in the way that God designs. What this means is the rules don't change. The reasons do. While the message is entitled Christ-Centered, I hope you recognize the more I talk, the more I'm talking about the nature of God's redemption and grace. People get scared about that. Oh, if you talk about grace too much, you know, people just take advantage. <laughs> you know, they'll just say, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Say, no, now listen, the rules don't change. It's still wrong to steal. Still wrong. But the reasons begin to change. The reason you don't steal is not so you'll be okay with God, because what you do isn't going to fix it. You're still going to be a thief at the end of the day. The reason you don't steal is because God loved you even though you are a thief. And knowing that, it begins to change your behavior. Your motive is different now. You're not doing this so that God will love you. You are doing this because God has loved you as a thief. Herman Ritterboss said it this way, The imperative rests on the indicative, and this order is not reversible. What you are to do is in the scriptures, but it rests on the indicative, who you are in Christ, and this order is not reversible. The way most people reflexively live in this world is they think, I will do something, and then I'll be okay with God. So I'll do the imperative, and then I'll be God's child. And the scriptures are saying the opposite. You can't do anything 
that would make you okay with God and God's child. It's because you are God's child, made so by Him that you live out your identity in Christ. I'll tell you, if that takes hold of you, it just changes absolutely everything in your life. I remember when my wife and I began in a, in a certain special way to understand these truths of grace and how it changed us, even the way that we talk to our children. Now, maybe it's not you, and it was just our weakness, but it so changed the way that we approached life that we even changed the way we spoke to our children in discipline. I remember saying to my oldest son at times, Colin, you, you're a bad boy because you did that. Hear that? Because of what he did, I would identify who he was. His behavior would characterize who he was. When I began to recognize, not the way that God deals with me, I had to change the way I spoke to my son. And I would say, Colin, don't do that. You're my child. It's because of who you are that your character is to change. But you're not a different person because you did or didn't do something right. You're my child. How do we speak to our spouses? I'm a male. So when my wife frustrates me or does something wrong, you know what I do? I don't talk to her. (laughs) You know, I'm a man. That's what I do, you know? But what does it mean to say it's not her behavior that should be determining my relationship with her? I'm in covenant relationship with her. And her behavior is not changing that covenant relationship. It doesn't mean we don't have things to talk about or work through. But my reaction to her is not to be based on her behavior alone, but upon the relationship, the indicative, who we are in Christ. We are in covenant relationship. And the behavior that I have toward her should flow out of the relationship. The behavior doesn't determine the relationship. The relationship determines the behavior. So the rules don't change. But the reasons do. You know the basic question. Are your people serving God for acceptance or from acceptance? Right? Most Christians are serving God for acceptance. But we should be training them and teaching them to serve God from acceptance. That's their strength. That's what really enables their obedience. Therefore, guilt should drive us to the cross. But gratitude should lead us from the cross. It is out of thanksgiving. And love for God that I now serve Him. It's why I think the greatest thing that we should do as preachers most consistently is consistent adulation of the mercy of God in Christ. That's my great goal in preaching, that people will know how wondrous, glorious, grand is the mercy of God in Christ. Because when they understand how powerful, how overwhelming is His love for us, it is the very thing that drives them to repentance and obedience. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, says Paul, right? It's that understanding of his great mercy that ultimately breaks people, humbles them, and leads them in his ways. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number 86, asks what I think is one of the grandest questions in all of church history, because it's so honest. Since we are redeemed from our sin and its wretched consequences by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why must we do good works? Isn't that a great question? Hey, if it's all grace, why be good? (laughs) What's the answer? So that our whole life we may show ourselves grateful to God for his goodness and that he may be glorified through us. Why do I serve God? Because I love him. Because he first loved me. It is out of gratitude for the wondrous work that he has done in Christ. And that, that changes our preaching. 
If I recognize what will most motivate people is their understanding of what God has done in Christ, then my greatest aim is to have people see clearly, wonderfully, consistently the face of the God who died for them in Jesus Christ. Look at him. See what he did for you. See how great is his mercy. See how the king of the cosmos gave his life for you. Don't you love him? Don't you want to serve him? Isn't that strength to your heart to know even when he knew the worst about you, he would do this for you? It is that motive and that enablement, ultimately, that takes people in the path that God desires. What I'm ultimately asking that we do is that we bow before the power of Christ's love. I know it sounds kind of schmaltzy and swarmy, but it is true. There is nothing more powerful than love. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. There is no more powerful force. Fear is not more powerful. Guilt is not more powerful. Intimidation is not more powerful. I'm not saying those things have no role in the Christian, but they are not the most powerful thing. The most powerful thing is people deep, people's deep apprehension of the love of God for them. And their response to that is ultimately what will drive them to him. I think of Bunyan when he was in prison facing death, arguing, you may recall, with the Anabaptists. They had different views of the ends of things. And the Anabaptists said to Bunyan, you can't keep assuring people of God's love. If you keep assuring people of God's love, they'll just do whatever they want. And Bunyan said, no, they won't. If you keep assuring people of God's love, they'll do whatever he wants. If they really understand it, they will do what he wants. The Westminster Confession states it this way. The liberty which Christ had purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God. And in their being delivered from the dominion of sin and their yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and willing mind. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if I'm not being motivated by condemnation, what should motivate me? Love. I know that I am greatly loved. And that response now is that my heart is responding to him in love. That, that's the more powerful motivation. If that happens, if I begin to understand that what is driving my holiness, making me have joy that is strength... For serving him. Then I recognize it's his grace that's ultimately the empowering mechanism of the Christian life. It's the opposite of what most people think. They think if you talk about grace, then you get license. But the fact of the matter is, biblical grace leads to obedience. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He said, we must learn that one must bow twice. Learn to bow twice in Christian obedience. This is how you know it's Schaefer, the philosopher. He said, first, you must bow to the metaphysical truth. <laughs> that is what God has done. You must first bow to what God has done in Christ before you would ever bow in obedience. Because he said, if you don't first bow to what God has done in Christ, then your obedience is irrelevant. And wrong. Think of that. If you're bowing in obedience, thinking it's what you do that makes it right with God, your obedience is irrelevant and even wrong. 
until you have first bowed to the fact that God in Christ has made it all right. Now your obedience honors Him and Him alone. And that is what we're talking about. How we make sure to God alone be the glory. Because through His matchless grace revealed in all the Scriptures, He has shown us His Son, who alone is worthy of our praise, and by His love has made us His own, so that we might serve Him with joy. That is our strength for all that He requires us do. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would so work in our lives. There are leaders in your church here that need to understand deeply your grace. Most of us have to relearn it every day. It is not the reflex of our heart to say that we love you because you first loved us. We want to say we'll love you and we'll do things. Now won't you please love us? Oh, turn our hearts to the gospel. Turn us backwards from the way of the world so that we might understand the priorities that the gospel explains them. And help us to preach and teach and counsel and parent and be spouses that way. The mercy of God in Christ, the knowledge of you, might fill the earth as waters cover the sea. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.